What up, family? Welcome to episode 113 of The Genius Life. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods and The Genius Life. On this episode of the show, I'm super excited to welcome medical doctor Sean Baker. Dr. Baker is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon. He's a multi-sport world record, world record holding Masters 50 plus athlete, and he's one of the most vocal proponents of the carnivore diet. He eats an all-meat diet, folks. Um, and the guy is jacked beyond compare. I mean, if you follow him uh, on any of the social networks, you'll see that the guy is just, he's a behemoth. And um, I didn't know what to expect going into this into this interview. If you follow him, you'll what you also notice is that he's a very, he's got a very aggressive personality. He uh, is sort of known for antagonizing proponents of the of uh, of the vegan diet, um, and especially some of the the health claims that come out of that movement, uh, but um, but he's actually I mean he's a very very smart guy and also very compassionate and I learned a lot uh, you know over the course of this interview and over the next hour you're going to discover whether or not the carnivore diet is right for you, who the carnivore diet is right for from a therapeutic standpoint, who you know might uh, might um, be well served giving it a try. Uh, we're going to discuss how he um, practices the carnivore diet, which is a little bit different than uh, some of the other proponents like Dr. Paul Saladino, who I've had on the podcast in the past, um, which is kind of interesting because you wouldn't expect there to be that, that much room for variation in an all-meat diet, but in fact, there seemingly is, um, and a lot more. It's a very interesting chat, and I think at the end, you're going to walk away with this, uh, having your assumptions about what it means to eat a healthy diet challenged, and you are certainly going to understand why, um, in many ways, we are designed to eat meat. This episode is sponsored by my good friends at Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic makes a range of medicinal mushroom-infused coffees that taste really good. If you're expecting mushroom coffee to taste like mushrooms, well, uh, you are in for a surprise. I love their instant coffees, which are all organic. Um, they are dose controlled so that you are not getting too much caffeine. I will uh, use a packet um, in the morning and each of their coffees, each you know, a single packet contains only about 40 to 50 milligrams of caffeine, which is a quarter of the caffeine found in your average cup of uh, Starbucks, we'll say. And they all incorporate medicinal mushrooms like um, lion's mane or chaga. Chaga has been called the king of uh, medicinal mushrooms and has been... Uh, suggested in some research to have immune supporting properties. The lion's mane mushroom, which is also incorporated, uh, has been suggested in some studies to um, possess cognition boosting effects. Lion's mane has uh, been shown to boost nerve growth factor, which can support neuroplasticity as you age. Neuroplasticity, of course, is the quality of your brain to uh, stay youthful and supple and to change in accordance with its environment. And, uh, and so I'm a big fan. If you want to try anything that Four Sigmatic has to offer, you can go to foursigmatic.com slash max uh, or use promo code max and you'll get to save a whopping 15% off of anything in their online store. I'm also a big fan of their uh, elixirs, which are caffeine-free, making these mushrooms perfect for any time of day consumption. At night, sometimes I'll combine a packet of reishi with chaga and drink it and it has that sort of earthy, coffee-like feeling to it. Although, you know, again, it's not coffee, so it's not gonna mess with your sleep. I love experimenting with these medicinal mushrooms. It's super fun to do and 
Um, you know, the research is not uh, fully settled on them, but different cultures have been using them for eons. And so I think it feels kind of cool, kind of ancient to um, experiment with them. I suggest going to check them out. And if you're going to foursigmatic.com slash max, promo code max, you'll get to save 15% off. This episode of the show is also sponsored by my friends at Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon makes a, uh, they make a line of, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. They are the most, uh, one of the best treats that I have in my cupboards are, is Magic Spoon cereal. It, it, it tastes like the cereal that I grew up with, but it is super high in protein, grain-free, sugar-free, feels like a treat when you're eating it, um, and it's a great way to boost your protein intake in a way that doesn't add a bunch of excess calories from carbs or fat. Great if you are on a low-carb diet, if you're on a keto diet, if you're on a high-protein, you know, muscle, like, support bodybuilding diet. Um, the cereals are dairy-based, so if you're, if you're you know, plant-based uh, or if you're sensitive to dairy, not going to be the best option for you, but if you do tolerate dairy well, I mean, man, their cinnamon cereal, uh, their cinnamon flavor, or frosted, which tastes like you know frosted flakes, um, or their their Fruit Loops, just so incredibly delicious. I don't even I don't know how they did it. I mean, they just they really nail the flavor. Um, and I've tried some of their competitors, and they all taste like cardboard compared to Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon just nailed the texture and the flavor. So if you're interested in a delicious uh, high protein cereal that you can eat and not feel guilty about, definitely check out Magic Spoon. If you go to magicspoon.com and use promo code Genius, you will get to save on shipping, free shipping um, at magicspoon.com if you use promo code Genius. I definitely recommend checking out their variety pack where you'll get a bunch of different flavors uh, to try. Um, and I know that they're coming out with new flavors all the time. So regularly head over to magicspoon.com uh, check them out, and um, again, promo code Genius, you'll get to save some cheddar on uh, on that shipping fee, which is uh, which is great. All right, guys, we're just seconds away from my chat with the one and only Sean Baker. So excited for you guys to listen to this. It's so good. But before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to iTunes user Bradio, B-R-A-E-D-I-O, who left a glowing five-star review for the show on iTunes. Bradio wrote, Listening to the Genius Life podcast is actively living a genius life. My wealth of knowledge and education has increased exponentially listening to this show. I come away from each episode with 100 new research topics, 100 new questions, and 100 answers. I love the way that Max actively learns on the show as well. I appreciate his humility and the respect via delegation he shows to his guests on the show. Really helps me and others realize that we're all still learning. The minute we stop learning is the minute we start dying. Thanks for the knowledge, Max. Keep it up. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to leave that rating uh, and that wonderful review for the show on iTunes. That's what it's all about, you guys. Living a genius life means uh, learning until the end. And hopefully that end is a long ways off uh, and gets further and further and further every day that you are on this genius train. Um, but, uh, but yeah, guys, that's what it's all about. And I love bringing you... Uh, the Genius Life, this podcast, week after week. In fact, I just uh, I just had a birthday. And um, on Instagram, one of the things that I said that I've learned over the past year is just how much I love doing this podcast for you guys. And it makes it all the more worth it when I read reviews that you write on, in, on iTunes, when you take the time to share the podcast on your social media and you tag me and I see uh, how much you guys appreciate it. It 
um, you know, it makes me feel like it's this this work is resonating with you. And uh, and, you know, that's what I do it for, because, you know, producing this, you do a lot of work in isolation. I don't think very many people realize that. Um, but when you guys leave those reviews uh, and, and the ratings on iTunes um, and you share about what we're doing here on on Instagram or on Twitter, uh, it just makes me feel like the work is not in vain and that it is um, reaching people. It's not falling on deaf ears. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And please continue to uh, spread the word about the podcast. Join my newsletter at maxlugavir.com. Text me if you live in the U.S. or Canada at 310-299-9401. Even if it's just to say what's up, uh, I would really appreciate that. And yeah, I'm excited for you to, to listen to this episode. I had a blast taping it. And you can also watch this episode on my YouTube channel. Um, it is uploaded in its entirety uh, in video format um, on YouTube. So head over there, check it out. And now without further ado, here's Dr. Baker. Sean Baker, Dr. Sean Baker in the house. You're, uh, you're on board the genius train. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming in and having this conversation with me. <laughs> thanks, Max. I appreciate you having me on. Um, so for my listeners who are not aware of you and your work, um, I mean, I know you because in the carnivore community, you're one of the, the chief like flag bearers for the, for the diet. Um, but beyond that, I don't know that much about you and I'd love to learn. Uh, so yeah, if you would just kind of fill me in on your background, I know you're a, me you're a med medical doctor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can give you a little quick five minute summary. Let's do it. You know, so I'm 53 years old. I've been an athlete up my whole life. I've uh, competed in a bunch of sports. I've had world, world records and world championships in a bunch of, you know, different sports now from weightlifting or powerlifting rather to Highland Games to uh, concept to, you know, uh, rowing world championships. And uh, in the middle of that, I, you know, I, did, I spent a couple of decades as an orthopedic surgeon. I was a, I was a military guy. I spent time uh, doing trauma surgery in Afghanistan. Wow. Prior to that, it was kind of funny. I started, went to college, got my biology degree, went into medical school, started playing rugby, you know, in medical school, was actually very good at it, got recruited to go play in New Zealand. I dropped out of medical school to play rugby, which is kind of a crazy crazy thing, but I did. I got to play against some of the New Zealand All Blacks, you know, did that until I was about 30. I went in the military. Uh, when I got back home from New Zealand, because I couldn't, st I wore out my war welcome in New Zealand. You can only stay there for so long on a visa. So when I came back home, I didn't want to go back to medical school. So I went in the military. Um, I became a nuclear weapons launch officer. Uh, I did that for about five years and played rugby for the military. And then when I was about 30, I was laying on the bottom of a pile. I was playing this team from Russia, and I was playing for a team in Denver, and I was laying there, and this guy's kicking me in my head. I had blood coming out of my ears, and I'm like, I'm 30 years old, I'm done. So I went back to medical school, the military paid for it, and then, you know, I went into, uh, uh, you know, orthopedics, did the trauma surgery, came out, you know, did my time in the military, went into civilian practice, and then, you know, about uh, five, six years ago, I started, well, actually about eight years ago, I really started getting into nutrition. You know, I was an athlete mid 40s i was kind of like despite training hard i mean i just won a world championship in highland games as a master's athlete but i was 290 pounds higher blood pressure you know pre uh, probably pre-diabetic metabolic syndrome sleep apnea not feeling great you know tired all the time despite training i mean i was still a pretty good athlete and then i just decided to take the plunge on nutrition and that led me to you know i lost you know 50 pounds in three months it was just you know exercise, move more, not eat much, eat a bunch of salad, eat a bunch of lean, you know, lean protein. And, you know, it worked. I mean, I was jumping rope 3,000 times in the morning, 
work out at lunch, jump again in the afternoon, all be- all between my my surgical stuff and my clinic. Um, and then I got down to two thirty ish, uh, which is what I, I'm, I'm about two forty right now. But I was about two thirty then. And I mean, the nurses are like, "We hate you. You're a lot. You're a lot happier when you're fat, you know." Because I was, I mean, I was hungry, I was grouchy, I was cranky. I wasn't getting enough nutrition, enough fat. And then I switched to a paleo diet, and then I got into low carb, and then I got into ketogenic diets. And then about three, a little over three years ago, about three and a half years ago, I started looking to this crazy carnivore stuff, and I saw this community of people that were doing it. And I was like, "Huh, this is interesting." And like, hey, they're they're interesting to observe. And I observed them for like six months. I said, "Well, I'm going to try it for the hell of it." And I started reading more. You know, the justification for it in the background, and I tried it for 30 days, and man, I was like, wow, I really feel good. And I said, okay, 30 days was fine. I'm going to go back to my more mixed diet, and I just didn't feel as good. I was like, well, you know, all things being equal, I'm not so scared about cholesterol. I've, I've you know, I've kind of been able to put that in context. And so I said, I like to feel good. I like to perform well athletically. I like to be strong. I like to be fit. I like to be 50 and still doing stuff I was doing in my 20s. I like to be able to dunk basketballs in my 50s. I like to be able to do a backflip. I like breaking world records, you know, and so these are the things that were my sort of, that's what I like doing, and plus I feel great. I like not having sore joints, I like having good libido, all those things, so I said, well, I'm going to continue to do this, and I've done this now for three years. Um, obviously, there's other people who have been heard about it, been inspired to try it. We have a lot of successes, a lot of big wins, you know, it's intriguing, you know, I've... Uh, Contrary to what many people think, I don't think this is necessary for everybody. I've never said that. I said, look, this is an option. This is probably, in my view, from a dietary standpoint, for people dealing with disease, this is probably an, an early option, you know, because it's a very good elimination sort of strategy. Um, you know, you don't have to mess around with 100 foods and figure out which one's causing a problem. It's like I use this analogy all the time. We're playing the game of Clue. You know, you got eight characters in there. You got Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick, and you got Mrs. Peacock and the whatever with the whatever. When you take all the characters off the board and you only got one character, you know, it's like it's pretty easy to figure out who did it. So that's how I approach this. And then, you know, many people, you know, they, they do that. They do the carnivore diet. They, they go really strict. They do it for 30, 60, 90 days. They figure things out. They solve things, and then they add back in. And I think it's completely appropriate. Some people feel so good, they're like, I don't want to add things back in. And I think that's fine, too. And I know there's controversy about are you going to get malnutrition? Are you going to have nutrient deficiencies? And there's a lot of nuance behind that stuff. And I've talked about that. You know, I wrote a book on this stuff as well. And it's it's uh, it continues to amaze me, not only the successes that are out there, people curing things that they're like, you'd never think it diet would affect, but also the sort of the unwillingness for people to accept that, hey, there's a dietary strategy that can be helpful for people. You know, and but but they they sit there and they condemn it. Oh, it's awful! It's the worst thing in the world. How dare you suggest that people do this? Or they're going to surely they're going to die in fifty years. And this is a, I think we we have to be honest. And I think this is a big problem out here. A lot of people think they can predict the future based on the data we have. Hmm. They think that they can tell you you have to eat this way, otherwise you're going to get a heart attack in thirty years, or you're going to get cancer, or you're going to die earlier. There is no way that we can tell that. I don't care what anybody says, we do not have the evidence. We have really poor epidemiologic studies that cannot predict when you and I are gonna die. We just don't know that stuff. And so my whole thing is we've got a lot of sick people, right? We have a lot of obese, depressed, disabled, you know, people for suffering from all kinds of diseases, mental health illnesses. If we just take those people and move them from being sick to now being healthy, that's huge. That's a huge win. So instead of saying, worrying about what they're going to die of in 50 years, because who cares? I mean, these people don't care. I mean, they, they just want to be sick anymore. And if we work on that, 
that is where I think we should we should focus our effort. And I think for many people, this diet seems to fit the bill pretty well. And how long they do it, how strictly they do it, that's going to be up to those individuals. But surely we can all recognize when, when we're sick and we're not sick. And I think even physicians kind of are starting to wake up to this stuff. Because I got a lot of physicians now that tell me, hey, man, you're not crazy. I do this all the time with my patients. I got patients with rheumatoid arthritis. I got patients with ulcerative colitis or, you know, uh, mental health issues, and they get better. You know, and, and you know, the, 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 the easy stuff is the cardiometabolic stuff, the blood pressure, the hypertension, the diabetes. That goes away. Like, that's – you can do that on any diet, right? Just lose weight, mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part. But some of the weird stuff, this autoimmune stuff, this Crohn's disease stuff, this – Refractory mental health disease stuff, the PTSD, which I see getting getting better. That wow. that to me is really really interesting. I think we really need to invest time and effort uh, into that stuff. And fortunately, because of all the people sharing their stories, I know it's it's just anecdote. It's just anecdote, but that drives hypothesis, just yeah. like an, an epidemiologic study does. Fortunately, we've got guys like David Ludwig at Harvard. We're doing a study on this now, so it's coming out. We're going to start collecting data. We'll start seeing this stuff published in the medical journals, and hopefully, it'll give people more or at least doctors more courage to, to, to use this with their patients. That's amazing. How much uh, nutrition training did you get in, med- in medical you know, school? We don't get much. I mean, that's, that's honest. I mean, you know, you, you don't go to the doctor for health advice or nutrition advice. I mean, if you do, you're like, you know, many times that you know more than they do. You can go to your plumber and get just a good advice, quite honestly. I mean, it's all independent, you know, the, the desire to do it yourself. And what, what, what prompted me to want to worry about nutrition was my own health. And just like anybody else. I mean, I know there's people saying, well, you're not qualified because you don't have a an RD or a PhD in nutrition. I'm like, well, that's fine. But I can make observations just as well as you can. I can read literature just as well as you can. I can see results in pe- people. And I'm trained about human physiology. I mean, I'm a physician. I understand this stuff. I can read the language, you know, and it's not hard to do science. I mean, science is not a field that's restricted to someone with a PhD. Science can be done by anybody, quite honestly. Yes. Now, I mean, obviously, you learn the language, you learn some of the, you know, the statistics, and there's a lot of things you learn. But an observation is still valid, you know, if if, if you're doing it in good faith. And you know, we've got, you know, it's it's really easy. I mean, the subjective stuff, you know, hey, maybe my knee hurt less or not. We give people that they, they, you know, photos, you know, they lose weight. Obviously, you can see that that's objective. We've got people with laboratory data, you know, imaging data with reversal of disease or improvement of disease. That's not that's objective. That's not placebo effect. That's actual verifiable data that we can utilize. And I think those things count. You know, I, I probably will be authoring some studies coming up. So these things are, you know, coming along there. So it's, you know, just like the guy who discovered H. pylori. You know, no one believed him. They thought it was a nut job. The only way he did it is he drank a bunch of bacteria, made, gave himself an ulcer. And then he finally, you know, he changed the, the philosophy behind how we treat ulcers. And so this is, you know, something similar to that, I think, hopefully. Wow. I think a lot of people today have heard of the carnivore diet either through uh, Michaela Peterson, who's a good friend of mine. She's amazing. Um, Paul Saladino, who's very, very smart, uh, also a physician. Um, or you. You're like, you know, you three are the, the pantheon of the carnivore diet movement. How did you discover uh, the carnivore diet? You mentioned that you you heard you know, there was like a group that was practicing? Yeah, I mean, it sounds crazy and people dismiss it. I mean, I was just on social media looking, you know, I was just kind of, just kind of, you know, you get into this stuff. We all, everybody's sort of built into social media now. It's all, it's weaved into our lives and now we're kind of irrevocably for good or bad. It's, it's the way communication goes on. And so, you know, I just started reading and deserving people and, uh, you know, seeing these people, they were, they called it zero carb at this time. There was a group called zeroing in on health. And I started, you know, talking, interacting with those, you know, asking them questions and, you know, that's how I started on this. And, uh, 
you know, it's been uh, a lot of fun. It's been, <laughs> it's obviously ruffled a lot of feathers. And I know Paul and I know Michaela. I've, I've talked with those guys. In fact, I just had a little podcast with Paul the other day. And Paul and I, you know, we have our a little bit of differences, but we generally agree. And you know, I've met, I've had dinner with Michaela a couple times. And so, yeah, they're they're good folks. They're, they their heart is in the right place. And we we I mean we're we're not out here to kill all the cows or you know harm animals. We're just out here to try to help you know, help people that are having problems. And, you know, hopefully we're doing a good job. Of course. I mean, I, I absolutely get the sense of that from you guys. And uh, as somebody who is, I mean, I am definitely a strong advocate for the consumption of animal products. I mean, I also advocate for the consumption of, of fruits and vegetables, but... Um, it's crazy. Isn't it? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'm not, a, and I, I want to be, I don't think that, you know, fruits and vegetables are inherently bad. You know, I, I don't. I just, I just think some people tolerate them better than others, and I think you need to be objective about. It. I don't think they are universally without problem. I think, I mean, there's all kinds of AIP protocols and FODMAP stuff. We see people that don't tolerate certain foods, whether it's animals, uh, or or fruit, vegetables, wheat, grain, whatever you want to say. But I, I think to say that just eat as many fruits and vegetables as possible and everything's going to be great. I think that's a little bit misleading. I think there certainly can be balance. I know I heard you talk about. You know, you, 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 you see a study about uh, visual processing speed going up when you consume, was it polyphenols, I think? So, uh, certain carotenoids, like carotenoids, lutein. Okay. Well, let's just, say, so let's just say that happened. Let's say, and I, this is a good topic because I think this is the way I would look at that. I would say, you know, that's a drug-like effect, you know, potentially. We'd say it's a drug-like effect. And there are many things that have drug-like effects, some good, some bad. We say nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, you know, thousands of drugs we've made, we've derived from plant compounds. And this is another sort of thing. And then the question would be, so if my visual processing goes up and you say, well, that seems like a good, good thing, and it probably is. So what happens when you don't take the carotenoid anymore? So does your, your, your visual sp processing speed maybe slows down, maybe slows down below baseline. So now you have to continue to take the carotenoids on a regular basis to have that effect. And so maybe is there a tolerance effect to that? Is that going on? We don't know. Does the effect wear out, wear off over time? Because this, is, I'm sure, was an acute study that was done. So what happens if we chronically expose? Does that effect go away with time? Are there side effects potentially? You know, who knows? I mean, this is all speculative stuff. I mean, it becomes very reductionist when you look at one, just one pathway and say, okay. Because, I, you know, we, you know, when we look at compounds, you've got, you know, enzymatic reactions, biochemical reactions. You add things in there, they either have no effect, they speed it up, or they slow it down. So you're going to say, what, what's going to happen? Is it, going, is it good? Is it bad? What happens somewhere else remotely? Is it good? Is it bad? What's the net effect? We don't just consume carotenoids in isolation. I mean, unless you go to a vitamin store and do that. But, but food has many, many things in there. So if we say, I'm going to eat some of the polyphenols in there, we say, well, polyphenols have good effects. You know, maybe they upregulate our defense systems, and that's a good thing. But then you say, well, what else do polyphenols do? Well, they, they inhibit the, absor the absorption of amino acids and fats. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I would argue it's maybe a bad thing. So it's kind of, you know, one of those things that we're just kind of like, you know, do we know, do we not know? You know, it's really hard. I mean, this is a, this is a hard thing. Nutrition is extremely hard. So I really, I, I, I look at the big picture and I'm really, some people say it's dumb, but I'm just like, you, we can, you can argue about the, the little pathways and say, oh, that sounds really cool and groovy and great. Let's take a supplement. Maybe it'll help. Maybe it does. Maybe I can objectively tell this. I mean, I don't know if you can tell if your visual processing speed got better or not. <laughs> maybe you can. Maybe you can't. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, you can say that I had diabetes and now I don't. I had high blood pressure and now I don't. I was fat and now I'm lean. I mean, those things I think are, are you know, the, the big picture things. And then the other stuff, you know, am I going to live an extra 6.7 months, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I just, and I think when people tell you that, 
I look a little bit, you know, a little suspect when anybody says that. When you guys like David Sinclair says, I can tell you within six months when you're going to die based on DNA, you know, histones and methylation, acetylation, epigenetic modification. I'm like, eh, I'm not sure. Yeah. I think the question is, though, do the benefits outweigh the risks? Right. I mean, with every treatment, right? Sure. There are benefits. Sure. There are risks. Um, so I guess you, uh, you're you arguing uh, that that the risks outweigh the benefits. No, I'm arguing it depends. I'm arguing depends. maybe for you it's a benefit. Maybe for somebody on a standard American diet, fiber is a net positive. Maybe fruits and vegetables are a net positive. For someone who has food sensitivities and reactions to, to spinach, oxalate problems perhaps, and are on a carnivore diet, probably a net negative. And I think it's just fair to say Let's test that. And, you know, for some people, it's like meat may be a problem. Now, it's kind of interesting. I was lecturing in Malaysia a few months ago, and we had a speaker there from Cambridge, and he was talking about food sensitivity testing, uh, immune reactions to different foods. And he had tested like a quarter million people for 20-plus years every year, quarter million, something like four million people. The most or the least reactive food that he ever tests ever is red meat. It's like, that, that's like baseline human food. Hmm. You know, eggs, dairy, shellfish, you know, seafood, uh, all kinds of plant compounds do tend to react to people. But red meat seems to be like that safe baseline food. And I think that's, you know, I think, you know, when, when people ask me, who is it appropriate for? I mean, outside of religious and financial and stuff. But I mean, human physiologically reasons, I think most people, particularly people that aren't really diseased, Red meat's a pretty inert food. I mean, mm -hmm. if your digestive system is messed up and you don't produce stomach acid and you've got all these problems, you know, that, that becomes more problematic. But for most people, that's the baseline food. And the question is, what can you add to that? Can you add fruits and vegetables? Can you add grains? Can you add dairy? And I think that's an open question. So I think, you know, for some people, I mean, obviously there's populations that eat a variety of food and they do well. And I mean, you can argue what's quality of life, what are we measuring, what's health, you know, I think that's a little bit individual. Most of us would say absence of disease, absence of pain, good function. Uh, you know, and if you got that, you're you're probably in the top five percent of people based on what we have today. You know, looking around, just going outside. Yeah. Um, so, what is your what is your iteration of the carnivore diet? look like? And where do you diverge in thinking from Paul Saladino? Because I've, I've had him on the podcast. Before. Yeah, I mean, Paul and I, you know, Paul started the diet because of me, basically. I met him <laughs> when he first did that. And we had this, you know, discussion. He said, you know, I really think we need to include a variety of different parts, organs. We need to, we need to, you know, show that we're going to hit, hit the RDA. And I'm like, Paul, I don't think that's necessary. I think he focuses more on theoretical concerns, and I've sort of always kind of looked at results and try to reverse engineer things. I'm saying, what are people that are doing that are successful than doing it a long period of time? Mm -hmm. And the common denominator is they're just eating a bunch of meat. Some of them eat organs, most of them don't. Some of them eat dairy, most of them don't. Some of them, you know, are uh, particular about fat to protein ratios, some of them are, but all of them in common are just eating typically red meat. So I'm like, that seems to be the central part. Now, I would say, and Paul and I agree, and I just had him on, I think Paul is kind of backing away a little bit from this. Maybe he does it, you know, when I'm around. But, but, you know, he basically says the same thing I do at this point. I think organs are obviously full of vitamins and minerals. You know, I mean, there's, there's probably no reason not to include them in the diet, particularly if you like them. If you don't like them, or if they provide no tangible benefit to you, then I don't think they're necessary. And I think there's people that have done this for 10, 15, 20 years that are testament to this. I mean, the belief that, uh, you know, we look at indigenous tribes and they eat the whole animal. And I think, well, I'd say, well, probably because they're starving. I mean, really, these indigenous tribes are 
pushed to the edges of society. They are subsistence, clearly. They eat everything they can. They even eat plants in a lot of cases, right? So if we're talking about they're only eating the you know, the most nutritious parts, I would say that that probably doesn't represent a surplus situation. And I think that humans were largely in a surplus situation. It's one of the reasons we grew the big brain, because we had this abundance of energy. And I think we were, we were killing big animals. We were killing mammoths and mastodons and, you know, oryx and whatever. A lot of animals, a lot of fat. They were not hard to come by. We were very effective at killing them. There's pretty good anthropologic evidence. It didn't take much besides the spear to kill these big animals. You think about it, I don't know if you've ever been to Africa. When, when you go down there, you go in a place like the Serengeti and you come up to elephants and they just kind of stare and look at you. They're like, what are you going to do? You know, because you're puny, right? And they're, they don't have any natural predators once they're adults. I mean, lions can't take them. They, can, they might pick off a few babies. But an adult-grown elephant has no natural predators. Little humans are like, but then we, guess what? We pull out some spear technology or some projectile technology. And then it's like a different ballgame, particularly as we moved into uh, Europe, Asia, and then North America, because those animals never saw it coming. They're like, oh, it's just another small animal. I'm just going to keep grazing. Mm-hmm. You know, so we were killing these things very, very easily. We had access to plenty of meat. So the question then becomes, um, and I think we're looking for fat. I mean, I think that's why we go after viscera. That's why we go after brains. That's where we go after bone marrow, because protein is very easy to come by when you're eating animals. I mean, there's mo- proteins everywhere. It's all the muscle meat. You know, much of the organs contain protein, but getting the fat is really the key, I think, because that's what where the energy comes from. You know, protein structure, fat is your energy outside of carbohydrates. And so I think the, the, the sort of the belief is we went after the viscera or wild animals go after the viscera. They're going for the fat, in my in my belief. They, they want fat because we don't have, I mean, we have essential fats, we have essential amino acids, we have vitamins and minerals. So that's what we need biochemically. We don't need vitonutrients. We don't need fiber. I know there's potential conditional benefits to that. But I mean, when it comes to what do humans absolutely require, you know, again, it's amino acids, fats, minerals, and, and uh, vitamins. So I think that is the difference there. I think we were really, we were seeking fat. That's why we cracked the marrow. Uh, early on, we were scavenging, you know, animals that can scavenge, that can crack marrow like hyenas, they can break the bones with the jaws. The other ones don't have enough jaw power. So we, you know, because we had that bit of a brain growing, we ever figured out we could crack or smack a rock into it. And now we've got access to all this wonderful nutrient-dense fat and, and having continuous access to that. So it wasn't probably feast or famine until we took up agriculture, you know, until we overhunted the mammoths, you know. And then there's debate on what drove the megafaunal extinction. I think most people, you know, there's people that will say it's all a, a giant comic that, that crashed 13,000 years ago in the, wherever, Greenland or wherever the heck they think it hit. Um, I think that is maybe, maybe account for a small amount of it, but mostly, you know, the, the extinctions that happened 50,000 years ago, 65,000 years ago, clearly patterned as soon as man moved in, homo, homo sapien moved in, boom, within a couple thousand years, the big animals went away. And so we just overate our food supply. And now we've got to chase down lean animals. And where do you get fat on lean animals? What's inside? You know, you're not, you're not killing mammoths anymore, which have fat in their, in their periphery, in their tissue. And so I think that's where that comes from. Hmm. So the, the, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the chief difference is that like Paul is advocating for like a nose to tail approach and you're just eating steak. You're just eating ribeyes. Well, I mean, that's not what I just eat, but I, I, I say nose to tail is fine. I have no objection to people doing that. I don't believe it's, it's absolutely essential. Like, and I don't even know if he says that anymore because he basically just you know told me this. He goes, oh, well, if it's working for you, fine. I'm not going to tell you to change. And there's enough people. And I, I literally, I've surveyed 10,000 people doing this diet. And about 15% regularly eat organ meat. The rest is very spotty to never. So we got, and, and the vast majority of them come off their beds, lose weight, 
you know, uh, mood stabilizes. So we're seeing the effect regardless of whether they eat organs or not. Now, certainly there's some people that may be particularly depleted, maybe, you know, not to pick on these folks, maybe explant-based people or vegans that have very much depleted stuff. They may find that they recover quicker with organs and, and maybe early on that makes sense. And then as time goes by, and we see this with people who have been in the community 10, 15 years, they'll say, yeah, you know, people, they start out with eating all the organs, getting excited, and then two years in, they're like, eh, I don't need that. <laughs> so I think that's, you know, and, and, you know, Paul is very ambitious and a very bright guy, and he's got a lot of stuff going on, but I think he's in that really excited phase where I'm going to make everything count and, and, you know, biohack everything to make it perfect. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm older. I'm kind of like, I don't want to deal with that stuff. I just want to, I just want it to be simple. You know, I think this is one of the problems we have. You know, people stress and obsess about fitness and nutrition, and it's anxiety-provoking, and it's, you know, you spend three hours a day thinking about what you're going to eat and calculating or, 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 or just making it happen. And I'm like, I open the fridge and I say, how many steaks do I want? One or two. You know, I mean, that's, that's literally my decision-making process when it comes down to nutrition. You know, I mean, to be fair, I'll eat some eggs once in a while. I'll eat some fish once in a while. I mean, I'll go out to eat. I'll have a little bit of dairy here and there. And I don't freak out if there's a They've got an herb butter on my steak. I'm like, oh, my God, there's a molecule of green thing. I don't care. I'm like, this is in what, you know, when I, when I, when I lecture about the carnivore diet, I said, what is it? And I said, look, the focus is on animal foods. This is where the money is. This is where the nutrition is. This is where you get your nutrition. The rest of the stuff, if you tolerate decoration, variety, you know, spice, whatever, if you enjoy it, go for it. You know, if it messes you up, be objective about it and say, maybe I shouldn't have it. Maybe I shouldn't eat that you know, uh, ghost pepper, you know, sauce, you know, cause maybe that messes up my guts, hmm. you know, just be honest about this stuff and say, or, you know, like, because honestly, you know, when I was, when I was practicing as an orthopedic surgeon and I've stepped away from that, I'm doing more nutrition stuff. But when I was practicing, I would get patients in there would tell me, Hey doc, you know, when I, whenever I eat like gluten, my knee would hurt. And I'd look at them like, I'd look at their allergy list and see if they're wackos. I'd say, man, you're, you're kind of weird. You know, you, you, I just didn't believe that stuff. Cause I was like, I was trained to, you know, cut people open, throw knee, knee replacements in them, prescribe them some drugs and get out the door, you know, go work out, don't be so fat and get stronger, right? I mean, this is, I mean, I, I don't, not to say that I didn't care, but I mean, this is what we're taught, right? And when somebody's telling you, yeah, man, gluten hurts my knees, you're like, man, you don't fit the paradigm, get out of my office, you know? I mean, you do it in a polite way, but you're thinking that. Now, I see it all the time. And it's like, you know, oh my gosh. And I found out with myself, when I went from a ketogenic diet, I mean, I had tendonitis in my right quadriceps. For 10 years, I mean, I was squatting 500 pounds. I felt like a little slight tear. I think I had a partial tear, and I had tendonitis, tendonitis. Could not get rid of it. I mean, I'd sit in a car for an hour, and I mean, my knee would be hurting. You know, I'd go to the gym, I'd squat. Invariably, I'd have knee pain afterwards. Carnivore died two months later. It went away. It's never come back. And I mean, that to me, that's, you know, not only shock, shocking, but fascinating. And we're seeing, there was just a paper came out the other day looking at uh, synovia sites, which are the cells that line the knee joint that produce the synovial fluid, which is a lubricant for our synovial joints, the knees, the shoulder, and some of the other joints. And we see that when insulin is really, really high, the synovial sites put out uh, inflammatory cytokines, you know, hmm. a whole bunch of them. And it causes the process of irritation, inflammation, and osteoarthritis. And so it's like, maybe I shouldn't be hammering my insulin up all the time. And how do we do that? frequent meals, a lot of carb-based meals. And so we shouldn't be snacking all the time. I mean, we see it all the time. We just see people that are just, you know, killing themselves through their diet. And, uh, you know, the thing that I thought was unique, because a lot of people will say, well, it's all weight loss. You know, it's just weight loss. I would see people that wouldn't lose anything. I mean, they might lose three or four pounds at most, knee pain completely going away from changing diet. So it's clearly more than that. You know, there's people that I see they're underweight. You know, they may be rheumatoid arthritis, maybe they're depressed. 
maybe they're anorexic. You know, they've got all these health problems and, you know, they put on weight and they feel better. So again, it's not all down to just losing weight like a lot of people will say. So I think there's more to it. Super interesting. So how do you, you're a public figure, you've got a big following um, at this point. How do you advocate then for this diet? Is it like a therapeutic diet or is it something that you believe that everybody should be on? No, I think it's something that I believe that people should be willing to try. I think honestly, from a medical intervention perspective, I think it's very effective. I think rather than putting people on pills, and procedures and other things like that. And setting, I think this is something a lot of people should try early on. I don't think it should be a, a, a last resort thing because most people who have done this have done it as a last resort. Hmm. I think you can use it as an elimination diet. I think clearly it works very quickly. It solves problem very quickly. It could, there are people that have spent 10 years trying to figure stuff out, going from nutritionist, trying diet to diet to diet to supplement, medication, medication. They go on the diet and like, wow, six weeks later, like everything went away. So I think it's something we should do early. If it works great, if it doesn't work, you know, give it 90 days and it doesn't work, fine, move on to something else. But I think it should be an early intervention for a lot of conditions, particularly things like autoimmune disease, also colitis, Crohn's disease, IBS, even mood disorders, you know, depression and things like that. I think those things are really effective. And then um, you know, for those that want to continue, that's fine. For those that want to sort of transition away, and we get a lot of people that are quote unquote carnivore adjacent or carnivorous or keto carnivore or meto. I mean, there's all kinds of names, right? They're just eating mostly meat and they'll have some berries and they'll have an avocado and they'll have, you know, whatever, whatever they want. And I think that's fine too. But I think, you know, because we hear, you know, obviously there's a huge, huge push to go plant-based, right? Save the world, save the planet, improve your health by going plant-based, right? And I, I'm very uh, skeptical about that for a lot of reasons. <laughs> Me too. But um, I think that, you know, when we see that, you know, the standard American diet is, is a plant-based diet. I mean, most people don't realize that. 70% of the calories come from plants on a plant-based, on, on a standard American diet. Now, granted, cheaper fine carbohydrates, sugar, seed oils, all that crap. But this stuff is still plant-based. When we look at the American diet, the average American eats about two ounces of, of beef a day. That's tiny. Two wow. ounces is nothing. It's like 5% of our diet. And we're blaming all these issues on beef. Now there's more dairy in there. There's eggs. There's fish. You know, things like that. But but when we actually look at red meat, it's a tiny, tiny sliver of the American diet. And we've got, you know, five times as much sugar, seed oils, and uh, refined grains are in there. So we're like, what's the culprit there? And, when, and interestingly, we see when people go on a whole food plant-based diet and they get better, they remove those same things. They get out the refined grains, the seed oils, and the sugar. When people go on a carnivore diet, they remove the same thing. And yet the vegans are maintaining, well, yeah, it's meat's bad. I'm like, no, it's probably the sugar, the seed oil, and the refined grains. And then the plants are fine if you can tolerate them. And that's kind of been my approach with this. But, you know, they're obviously, they've got this sort of ideologic, you know, let's save the animals type of thing. And then, you know, we can go into the environmental stuff. And that's really, I mean, it's really a shame how we're, we're scapegoating the animals. Now, clearly, agriculture in general has an environmental impact. There's no doubt about it. And clearly... When it comes to animal agriculture, we can continue to improve, and we have in large large ways. We have, and we continue to do that. Should we just wipe it out completely and all eat soybean burgers to save the planet? I think that's an extremely – that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, guys like Don Lehman have done calculations on study and said if everybody went plant-based, we could provide sufficient calories, but we would have to feed people even more calories than we do now to avoid critical nutrient deficiencies and things like lysine zinc and some of these other things. So hmm. people would be nutrient deficient. They'd be eating more calories. They'd be fatter than they are now. You know, we wouldn't be saving the planet. Clearly, we, you know, we wouldn't. So that's, 
you know, that, that's just not a solution. Yeah, I like to remind people that, I mean, just how amazing animal agriculture is and the fact that, you know, they take these soybeans and they extract the oil, which they then feed to Americans. And right. this is something that's kind of, you know, and then, and then it's the soy cakes and the byproducts that they end up feeding to these cows, which, you know, and I'm not a fan, I don't endorse the industrial factory, the factory farming system, but how amazing is it that cows are able to basically upcycle this garbage and turn it into such powerful nutrition? Yeah, and, and just to be clarified, cows don't eat much soy. I mean, they, they don't handle soy very well. It's usually pigs and chicken to get the soy products. And most of the soy, like in Brazil, where they're always talking about the rainforest, most of that soy, obviously, is all 100% converted into human consumable oil, either via biofuels or in our soybean oil and all of our processed food. Um, and then the soy meal that's left over will go mostly to China to feed the Chinese pigs. Um, so, yeah, but it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, when we look at you know, upcycling cows, and most people don't understand that, you know, because cows eat grass all day. I mean, all cows pretty much eat grass for most of their life. And then a small, you know, in the United States, a large percentage, about 95% of them go onto a feedlot where they spend about three months eating not just grain. I mean, they eat, they still eat uh, the, the forage, they still eat the hay, they still eat the, you know, the, and then they slowly add in a little bit of grain in there. And so about 10% of their diet ends up being grain. You know, this is this is how they spend, they finish these animals. And, and, and Even in the factory farming system? That's how, they, that, that's, that's how the, the CAFOs and the, and the, the, the grain finishing system works. Hmm. It's, not they, it's not that they sit in a cage and are shoved corn. They, they still eat, at most of their diet is 50% corn at the very finishing phases for the last few weeks. So hmm. if you go actually to go to these places and ask them, it's a lot different than you know, Cowspiracy and these other, you know, documentaries will, oh, will tell I'm, you that. Sure. I, I've actually been there and visited and visited with the people. So it's kind of, you know, you have a little bit more grounds to talk on when you've actually been there rather than getting your information from a documentary, which of is course. obviously biased. Right? Of course. So, you know, this is another thing I think, you know, it's, it's how you frame the argument. You know, we say, well, if we use a greenhouse gas argument, which is something that people like to, this is a climate change emergency, right? We've got to, we've got to cut down. We can't allow our atmosphere to go or our temperature to heat up by two degrees Celsius, or, or you know, the world's going to explode, right? We're all going to die. Um, when we look at greenhouse gases in the United States, for instance, you know, we can look at the EPA data. So the healthcare sector produces 10% of our greenhouse gases. Cows produce 2% of our greenhouse gases. And so when you take people that are sick, I mean, these. so what's not sustainable is sick people. You know, sick people are the biggest environmental, uh, when it comes to food and nutrition and health, sick people are the biggest environmental impact when it comes to greenhouse gases. So if you take people, like they go on a carnivore diet and they're no longer sick and they're no, no longer using all their medications and going to the doctor visits, guess what? They've just become more environmentally sustainable. Now, they've contributed, you know, to the 2% of what the cows are putting out, but they've stopped contributing to the 10%. So it's just kind of how you frame things because when we – you know, make these huge policy changes, there's there's obviously knock-on effects, there's unintended consequences. And so let's say we say you stop eating meat, start eating impossible burgers. I would argue that's complete garbage, you know, and, and people will say, people like Neil Bernard say, no, no, it's completely fine, or Walter Willett might say that. I think clearly this industrialized process slop is making people sick. Now, that's debatable, but that's that's what I think is occurring. Now, the problem is so many people, most of their diet is industrialized, processed garbage. So you add a little bit more to it, and it's like, eh, does it make that much difference? Probably no one will notice. Right. Right? And so the guys in the background, and this is the thing, we've got all these cries about the environment. Let's save the environment. Let's do this. Let's go. Let's save the animals. And what is? how did industry respond? I mean, what was the big push? Did they plant more blueberries? Did they, you know, were we getting more lettuce? Were we getting more kale and quinoa? No, we're getting... 
you know, the fake stuff, the, mm-hmm. the impossible burger, the slop. And the reason for that is, you know, they're projecting that this alternate protein uh, industry is going to be $140 billion a year, you know, industry. And so these guys are like, you know, rubbing their hands thinking, look at all the profit we're going to make. And so anytime I see plant-based, I think cheap and profitable. That's all that means, you know, you know in, in, in my view, because, you know, We've been eating meat for, what, three million years as, as a human species. What other animal on the planet that has been eating meat its entire existence gets chronic disease? None. So why is it humans who have been eating meat their entire existence suddenly now yeah. are getting disease from meat when we've been doing it for three? And we didn't have these, these problems. And I know that people, the, the people will say, well, they only live 30 years. Well, that's not actually that's not actually correct. You know, there's plenty of... Fossil remains where they think these people live much longer, 60, 70, 80 years old. It's just the infant mortality rates were so high. You know, if, if a 30-year babies die at, you know, at birth, you know, your, your, your population average is going to be really low, and that's clearly what's happening. And so, in fact, when we, we adopted agriculture, I mean, we got smaller. We lost brain size by about 200 cc's. Uh, our skeleton got weaker. We, our, our teeth started to fall apart. We, we just got worse as a species when we took Mina out of the diet and, and converted over to, you know, a grain-based diet. Yeah. I mean, it's just the, the nature of the food system today. It's so complex. And, you know, there's at this point, there's just like there's blood on pretty much everybody's hands, no matter what you choose to eat. So I couldn't agree more with you that to, to eat foods that are going to put you in the healthiest body composition to be in the most, uh, to, to be in the best metabolic health. Um, I think those are, those are the choices that, that you need to make. Um, so where do you, there, one of the, uh, the arguments that I've heard when it comes to eating predominantly muscle meat, the question that I was going to ask you, I know it's going to come back to me. It was a good question, but uh, what I did want to ask you was, um, you know, people will say that if you're eating too much muscle meat, you're consuming too much methionine, for example, which is an amino acid found concentrated predominantly in muscle meat. But then, you know, if we're not eating collagenous tissue, we're losing out on glycine, which you need to sort of balance out methionine, or you might have an impingement on your, on your lifespan, for example. What do you think about that? Well, I I mean, first of all, any predictions on lifespan I think are garbage. I mean, we can't, we just can't, we can't do that. Mm. But I mean, when it comes to methionine glycine ratios, and I've talked to Paul about this, and I say, look, um, you know, I'd say, what is your argument, you know, clinically? And he said, well, there may be a collagen problem. And I'm like, well, you know, no one's having, no one's having that clinically. But when we look at that, we have all these compensatory mechanisms that occur. And so there's a, there's an interesting study, I think it's, out of, it's from like 1970. It was done on... Africans, I think it might have been from folks in either Uganda or Kenya, and they basically looked at glycine absorption rates through the small intestine where it's absorbed in the absence of glucose, in the absence of galactose, this is one of the sugars that makes up lactose. And they saw that in that situation, their glycine absorption went up, I think, two to 400 percent. So we're seeing that, you know, if you're saying I'm getting too much methionine from eating meat, you know, and the study that Paul's referencing is a rat study, right? And, and so what we're seeing is we have compensatory mechanisms when we're not eating sugar that now our glycine ratios go up. So I think it, we just, we just comp- compensate for this. And we see this the same thing with vitamin D, with calcium. You know, one of the thoughts was that you eat too much protein and we see that uh, we excrete more calcium in our urine. We get hypocalcuria, right? And so people assume it comes from our bone. But guess what? It's not what happens. We've, we've discovered that... When we eat a higher protein diet, we absorb more calcium through our gut. So the more absorption, the more we get through our gut, the more we excrete in our urine. So the, 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 again, there's all these compensatory mechanisms. You know, you can look at, you know, with studies from the 1920s, 30s, when they look at metabolism and they show that, you know, 
they were Inuit that had low vitamin vitamin D levels, which would make sense because they live in the you know they live in the cold where it's dark all the time, right? Half the year is completely dark, and they looked at which ones got actual disease, which ones actually got vitamin D deficiency disease, like rickets, and there were two populations. One population was eating their native diet of you know seal and you know reindeer or whatever they're eating, no rickets, even though they had low vitamin D levels. There's another population has low vitamin D levels. They're eating flour, sugar, canned goods. Guess what happened to them? Same vitamin D level, but now they get rickets. So it's not even as simple as what's in your blood. It's like how much do you actually need? And so it's, it's you know it becomes very fascinating. So wait, did that study? Correct me if I'm wrong. The study that uh, that Paul referenced that you brought up. If we're consuming more sugar, essentially, it's going to reduce our capacity to absorb glycine. That would be based on the study in, on Africans. Yeah, that would that would be the assumption because if you have glyce, if you have if you have glucose mixed in with the with the with the methionine and the, and the glycine, the glycine doesn't absorb as well. Yeah. What about vitamin C? Because that seems to be a hot topic amongst carnivores. Yeah, like, yeah. are you getting like you're probably getting enough vitamin C to not develop scurvy, but is it is it optimal? Like, what are you, what are your thoughts on vitamin C? Well, I mean, clearly, no one's getting scurvy. I mean, I, you know, or at least anybody. Anyone. The only cases I've ever heard of scurvy are people like living on spam and beef jerky, which <laughs> no one's recommending. You, you you need to have fresh meat. It doesn't mean you have to eat meat right off the animal as it's warm. Still, I mean, it's just meat that hasn't been preserved or dried. So that clearly, no one's getting scurvy. Now the question is. You know, how much is optimal? How much is enough? I know guys like Chris Master, it's like, you need 150 milligrams a day. And Paul's like, no, it's 60. And, you know, I don't know that we can say for sure. I, I clearly don't. I mean, you know, again, it's like, this is where we get into almost astrology. It's like, we're going to predict the future. Are you mm-hmm. going to be optimal 20 years from now? I don't know that anybody knows. I know we have compensatory mechanisms and we don't take in vitamin C. There's a host of things that, you know, occur. You know, we, 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 some people argue you're getting more carnitine through meat. Some people will say that, you know, vitamin C is an antioxidant and therefore we have upregulation on a low-carb diet, glutathione, uric acid, some of these other things that can also serve as antioxidants. And so how much is enough? I don't think anybody can accurately say. Clearly, people that have been doing this 15, 10, 20 years still seem to be thriving and don't seem to be having any of these supposed you know, whatever the speculation is they're going to get with, with vitamin C suboptimal levels. I, I, again, I I can't guarantee that. No one can guarantee that. It's just, you know, kind of. And the thing is, you know, this isn't a dogma. This isn't a religion. If you need some vitamin C, you know, you know go whatever. Take a vitamin C pill or whatever. If that truly becomes an issue, I mean, it's, it's solvable. It's not, you know, oh, my God. I'm not going to eat vitamin C because I want to save the you know kiwi fruit or save the avocados. You know, you know, it's kind of like you can do that if you needed to. You so. brought up a, uh, something very interesting on a podcast with that uh, you were on that I was listening to the other day that I thought was just a really great way to frame um, why meat is so uh, just so great from a nutritional standpoint. And it was it was I mean I know why meat is is important, but you framed it in a way that I thought was just really compelling that the first organisms were essentially um, meat eaters or right. carnivores. Sure. And so I mean, yeah, you put, I would love to hear you kind of go through that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's from an, just, just, a, just an efficiency standpoint. And so as, as animals started to develop around 800 million years ago, at least, you know, for those that believe the evolutionary theories, 800, 800 million years ago, multicellular animals started to emerge. And what did they eat? They ate single-celled organisms because it was just like, I'm made of something and I need more of it. So I'll eat, you know, I'll eat that. And that was a strategy. And that's been the strategy for about 90% of all animals that have ever existed on the earth. Now, 
Some of them, as you know, different environments, you know, kind of came into place. Like when the grasslands developed 100 million years ago, we started to find animals that could adapt to eating other products, and they had to develop more complex, you know, digestive systems like rumens and cows, or you know, other animals that have hindgut fermentation, like horses, and then some of the primates. As that came in, that became a specialized skill, but it was less efficient. You know, it's just dealing with an inferior product and being able to extract nutrition from that. Um, you know, as, you know, human, well, then we go into, the, as humans develop, we, we kind of went back to the more efficient strategy, but it's just, it makes sense. I'm, you know, when, when, you know, I've operated on thousands of people. When you cut a human open, they're made out of red meat. I mean, that's just the way <laughs> we're red meat animals. And like I said, if we're building, you know, if you've got them, we're seeing this, you know, in this, the crazy, you know, we've got this game changers and these athletes are trying it. we got guys like Cam Newton, he hurts himself, can't heal. Kyrie Irving is just out for the season because he can't heal his, sh- heal his shoulder. And I know people say, oh, you're just cherry picking athletes get hurt all the time. But I mean, it was kind of interesting. I interviewed a gal. Her name's Kai Furneaux. She was a uh, she was on Naked Af- Naked and Afraid. She was like a Hollywood state stunt woman, and she was a vegetarian. Went on the show, lost a bunch of weight. You know, had to succumb, had to eat. You know, animals to survive. She said it took two years to recover from that. You know, she lost twenty pounds two years as a vegetarian to recover. She went back on again as a carnivore. She's now on the carnivore diet. She said she did the same thing, lost some weight. I mean, within two days, she was back at the gym working out. She started eating it. So it was like the recovery time was nothing, you know, and, and we see this over and over again. So you think about it, we're building, you know, animal tissue, we're building animal cells, and there is a relationship, how much leucine, how much lysine, how much valine, you know, how much phenylalanine, how, you know, all these amino acids that we have that are in the appropriate ratios and the appropriate amounts and bioavailable. In fact, there was a recent study that just came out looking at the digestibility and the bioavailability of essential amino acids. And what they did was they took plant protein and animal protein, it was whey protein versus these plant protein blends, and they equalize them. They said these plant proteins have the exact amount of amino acids, the exact amount of leucine, which we know is, which is important for muscle protein synthesis. And they fed them to these guys. And guess what? When they got the animal protein, their amino acids in the blood spiked nice and high. The plant protein, even though it was equivalent, the exact same amino acids, was 30 to 40% less. Wow. So that clearly shows there is a huge difference in there. And so it just makes sense. You know, you're building something, you know, and that's that's on a blend. That's on an isolate that's been designed. You know, in, in nature, you know, you've got to get rice and beans. And you got to imagine. you got to, you got to make everything work. And it's kind of like... You, you go back and, you know, you can imagine if you're, you're you know, a caveman and you're like, okay, I got to go get rice, which grows 700 miles away and beans <laughs> that grow, grow 500 miles. You couldn't make that work. I mean, the only, the only ubiquitous source of, you know, these essential amino acids that was in every location throughout the world at all times and all seasons is an animal. I mean, you can't just make that. I mean, somebody tells me that plants are essential. I'm like, well, name the plant that grows in every situation throughout the world, in every altitude, every temperature range, and then I'll believe you because it doesn't. You know, you can't find them. I mean, maybe somebody can name one. Maybe it's grass. I don't know. <laughs> no, but it's true that the, the nutrients that we get in animal products are bioidentical to what we crave in, you know, in terms right. of our biology right. in our own bodies. I mean, even vitamin D, you know, to carry us over through the winter, the vitamin D found in egg yolks in oily fish is going to be the same kind of vitamin D that our skin produces. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, somebody would say, well, it's an you know, it's kind of a backhanded way for an advocacy for cannibalism, which I obviously, you know, it's socially <laughs> incorrect to do that. I don't, I don't advocate for that. But I mean, seriously, the more similar it is to, to what you're made of, and that's why people gravitate. I mean, people that do this carnivore diet, you know, they start out fish, chicken, pork. They all end up going, man, I just want red meat. I just want steak, you know, because it, it's, it's really 
the most similar to what we can get outside of eating other humans, again, which is not a good idea. But that's what we're made out of. That's what we really need. I think it has what we need. I mean, animal cells, basically, what are the requirements for an animal cell? It doesn't matter if it's an eyeball cell or a liver cell or a bone cell. The nutritional requirements are basically the same, and they have those ingredients. Now, the concentrations might be a little different, but if you eat enough animal cells, and I know this is very simplistic, but if you eat enough animal cells, you're going to get what you need, right? You're going to get what you need. And the question is, how much is enough animal cells? Well, guess what? We have this really neat feedback system called, called an appetite. So you eat enough, you know, whether it's liver, which may fill you up because you, you get the nutritional quicker, or it's steak. You might need to eat a little more steak. And so that's that's I think that's a difference there. But I think... You know, there's no other animal that straps a Fitbit and walks around with an app to figure out how to eat, right? And so, it, so a human should have that capacity. And I think, you know, I think just eating meat and enough of it really does that. It hacks your appetite. It's really hard to get fat eating meat. I mean, if you take a, a normal, healthy, normal weight human being and say, just go eat as much meat as you want. You know, even if they stuff themselves and they just challenge, they may gain five, they may gain five ten pounds, but they're not going to get morbidly obese like the people that are eating cheesecakes and Doritos and Twinkies and ice cream. I mean, it just doesn't happen. So I think it's I think that's the natural food for us. And again, if you can tolerate some other things, you know, I mean, I don't care what you believe that we ate fifty thousand years ago. Clearly, it wasn't Twinkies. Clearly, it wasn't Doritos. Now, had those things been available back then, I sure as hell think we would have eaten them. I mean, I mean like we would have because they taste good and they're, they're a lot of energy. And that's, again, that's a, that's a strategy. You think about when you were going back, no one had a dietitian telling them, hey, you need to hit your RDA of this and look at the polyphenols and look at the leafy greens. All they cared about was, I'm hungry. I need energy. You know, I mean, I'm going to get my protein, eat animals. Hey, there's some berries. Hey, there's some honey. I got energy. I'm gonna. That's what I'm gonna go for. Am I gonna eat leaves? Eh, they don't taste very good. There's no. There's no. There's no calories there. Why would I? Why would I want to eat leaves? I mean, I mean, I. I think again. I think medicinally, you know, and we can talk about you know the psilocybin, the CBD, the THC, the whatever, the LS, microdosing LSD, all this stuff that people are doing right now. I think it does have a medicinal effect. And again, the, we talked about this earlier. Is it? net positive is net negative is there tolerance that developed you need to keep getting progressively more and more like you do with caffeine you know what happens you start one cup of coffee woo now now three years later i'm drinking six cups a day is that the situation that's so bad I think, yeah. you know so i think you just you know you just have to put it in perspective and like i said i always encourage people to try i mean anytime somebody consults me i'm saying hey we need to go strict carnivore for a while three months six months in once you I think there's another topic about food addiction. And I think that's a really, a lot of people struggle with that yeah. because they can't. And, you know, I, you know, I've been there. I mean, I'll, you walk by the plate of cookies, man. You're like, ah, I don't need it. I don't need it. You walk by three or four times and all of a sudden I'll just have one, you know, and then you just sit down and F it. <laughs> I'm going to eat the whole damn, you know, thing. Or you get you go three, you know, I'm a big guy, three, three pints of Ben and Jerry's later. <laughs> and you're like, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I feel good. I'm bloated. Three. Man, I was too, man, I used to eat eight, eight 10,000 calories a day, man. <laughs> I was, you know, I was 290, 300 pounds. Damn. You know, so. Uh, but, you know, so I could do that. And so now it's like I've got this magic ability to not do that. And I think that's really almost like a superpower these days because it's everywhere. I mean, it's ubiquitous. You can't go anywhere without being bombarded with highly palatable food that's everywhere that's cheap and we're marketed to. We're like, hey, man, eat this. It's just good. You deserve it, right? You deserve that, you know, that Snickers bar or whatever. It's so satisfying. And, and you know, it's hard to escape from that. And everybody's doing it. And your friends are doing, hey, what the hell? Go ahead and do it. It's kind of like peer pressure. But once you get sort of the physiology lined up. And this is what happens when you eat this really highly nutrient-dense food, steak and eggs, liver if you want it. You get so satisfied. You're like, eh, I don't really need that. And then you go three months into this, and you're like, hey, man, I've conquered this. And now you now if you want to have it, 
I can I can pick and choose, but I, I don't have that pressure. I don't have that internal constant gnawing at the back of my mind. Man, oh, that's going to go to that refrigerator. I know there's something in there. I'm going to sneak down there. You know, you get rid of that stuff. It goes away. And, and literally, it's like having a superpower because you're like, man, I can just I can eat when I want. I have control over it. And it's really people say it's so restrictive, but it's really very freeing in that regard. And, and then I tell people, look, you know, get to that point. That's step one. Conquer your cravings, conquer your food addiction, and then you can pick and choose and, you know, kind of adjust and, and do all those types of things. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say that that's almost the one thing that all of us seem to be able to agree on is that those ultra processed foods really are poisonous. And then I thought to myself, well, there's probably like those if it fits your macros lunatics that are like, you, I mean, those are fine too if you just, you know, are counting your calories. Well, I mean, yeah, and I, I've debated Lane Norton, you know, before I've had it, and I worked out with Lane, and, you know, I mean, I, I think he's generally doing trying to do a good thing, but same. I think that, um, you know, clearly food quality, I think, matters. You know, I mean, there's you got the Twinkie diet guy, right? You can go and eat 1,600 calories of Twinkies and lose weight. Well, who cares? I mean, what did your body composition do? What happened to your... You know, inflammatory marks, can you do that for 10 years? What happens if you do that for 10 years? I think negative things are going to happen, quite honestly. And I don't think you're going to stick to that. I mean, I think, you know, we have this weird sort of weird world where fitness competitors and Instagram models, and everybody's showing off their six pack. And it's like, how did you get there? You know, there's a lot of drug uses in that. But I mean, it's just like they're, they're just miserable when they're in that condition. And it's like, you know, I've got to restrict so much. And most people just want to be able to eat and not worry about it. And that's, I mean, literally, I sit there and, you know, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a fitness model, but I'm relatively lean. I'm 53. I've, yeah. I've got, you know. You look great. I'm, you know, in reasonable shape. And I don't worry about it. I just eat. I mean, I'm like, I'm, when I go home, I've got a, I've got a two and a half pound friggin' big old, you know, prime <laughs> ribeye waiting for me when I get home. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to enjoy it. But I'm not counting calories. I'm not counting macros. I mean, if I want to get really lean, I can eat a little leaner food for a while, but do I want to? I don't, you know, I don't really care that much. Yeah. There's no, I mean, there's no doubt that the, your diet with the diet you're on is probably the most satiating diet you're going to find, right? Meat is the more protein is the most satiating macronutrient. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll be the first to admit that when I crack open a bag of one of these like healthier junk foods, I can't stop. Like it's impossible for me to stop. Are there any foods that you, um, I mean, you know, like, white rice or like, you know, an occasional baked potato. I mean, is there ever a time where you feel like this isn't going to hurt me? Like, why not? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I, you know, for me, I've, I've done the targeted keto. I've done the cyclic keto stuff. And I found it from an athlete, and I'm really concerned about athletic performance for me personally, but I didn't find like a significant enough of a, of a benefit for me. And again, I'm 53, uh, that it made sense for me to do that on a regular basis. Did you ever miss um, the taste? Um, not so much. I mean, you know, I mean, certainly uh, I, you know, like, here's what I'd say. I mean, I'm not going to cheat on my diet to eat broccoli. I mean, right. F that. I don't like it. I mean, it's not going to eat anyway, right? I never liked vegetables growing up. I remember my dad, who's on a carnivore diet now, he used to make this meatloaf with onions, and I hated onions. <laughs> and he put them in there, and I'd sit there and... I'm like, Dad, why did you put onions in there? You know, I don't like it. He goes, you can't even taste them. I said, well, if you can't taste them, why'd you put them in there? And he's like, well, <laughs> shut up and just eat them, right? <laughs> so, but then, then I talked to him like years later when he was a carnivore. I said, dude, why did you make me all those vegetables? Oh, I don't know. I just felt like you had to, but he never liked them either. So it's kind of funny. But, uh, you know, I, if I'm going to cheat, it's going to be like, I'm going to have a piece of chocolate cake. I'm going to have a piece of cheesecake, something I really, really like. Like my daughter had a birthday, you know, what was it, in June, and I had a piece of cheesecake. And, you know, I ate it and 
I felt okay. And I was like, cool, that's fine. But I, I don't really like sit there and like, oh, plan on it and crave this stuff anymore. So, uh, you know, once in a while, my girlfriend will like, she's, she does like 95% carnivore. She used to be a vegetarian. She'll, she'll still eat some fruit and a little bit of vegetables here and there, a little avocado and stuff, which avocado technically is a fruit. But anyway, <laughs> she'll like, you know, say, oh, look at this. This is a really nice piece of watermelon or something. So I'll, I'll take a bite of it and I'll taste it. Oh, it tastes okay. But I, I, I don't really get excited about that anymore. You know, it's, it's weird. I mean, I know it seems crazy. If you'd asked me five years ago, like, oh, you only like, well, you want to eat steak and eggs. Um, it just goes away. I mean, you just don't have that craving and desire. Now, it's not to say, and people ask me, are you going to do this the rest of your life? I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not really, I'm not going to pin myself down to that. I mean, recently I tried to bring in some fruit and, you know, I like fruit. It tastes good. I had a bunch of raspberries and I honestly, I started getting a little bit of knee pain. I know it sounds totally crazy, but I just, I was like, you know, it's, it's just this there. And I mean, I know, I know when I was on Rogan, I said, look, I ate a bunch of food and one of them was an apple. He's like, what? An apple made you have back pain. And then it's kind of funny. Two years later, he's like, I went on the carnivore diet and I ate some other food and I got back pain. And I'm just like, you know, it's the same thing. Now, I don't know if it was the apple. I don't know if it was, you know, whatever else I was eating because I ate a bunch of foods. But it's just, you know, I'll experiment. But, but to your point, because I, I work with a lot of athletes now, a lot of high-level athletes are wanting to try this because it does seem to have a performance advantage. From When we talk about athletics, recovery is phenomenal. You know, your protein is good. I mean, your strength, your tendon tends to go good. Your, your body composition improves. Your strength to rate, rate, weight ratio goes good. And then I tell them, you know, let's see how you do with performance. And if you're doing, like, really high-intense glycolytic stuff, then you may say, what carbohydrate can help me? Because clearly it does have a performance advantage or it can you can make up a lot of that for gluconeogenesis and you can adjust your training to where you don't need those things. And I think the, the question becomes, you know, from an athletic performance over the long haul, like say you're, you know, say you're an Olympic athlete and you're training for four years for mm -hmm. the Olympics. The more days you can train, the more days you're not sick, injured, tired, the better your performance is going to be long term. So if you're if you're eating a diet that's inflammatory, and I think certain a lot of athletic diets are. I think meat is, tends to be not very inflammatory. So the more you can train with meat, you know, you, you can get that. And then if you just need a little bit of carb here and there and be very judicious about you use and you find a minimum of effective dose, that works pretty well for those guys. And so it may be as simple as just like a dextrose tablet. I mean, I mean again, we're talking about just athletic performance. We're only Because the only concern really is glucose. In my view, the greatest benefit for plant food is just the glucose. It's just the energy. It's, it's you know, it's not the poly, I know it's not the polyphenols and the tannins <laughs> and all the things that we think are great. I, I don't. I think that's plus or minus. But I think from a performance standpoint, it's clearly glucose is a big winner here. Glucose is not the enemy. I mean, it can be for a diabetic perhaps, but we make glucose. I mean, our, we critically need glucose, and if we don't get it, we don't feed ourselves. Our body will make sure we have it through gluconeogenesis. It's one of the reasons people have such good blood sugar control on a carnivore diet because we make just what we need. We, we just make exactly what we need, and it's very flat and stable. Every time I've seen somebody strap on a CGM on a carnivore diet, I mean, it's like it's like a pond, man. There's not even a wave. I mean, it's so stable. And the endocrinologists are super happy. The type 1 diabetics are super happy. But back to the athletes, I'd say find something that doesn't irritate your gut because, you know, if you're on a carnivore diet, you know, you're getting most of your nutrition from meat, say 70% meat, meat, eggs, whatever, 30% are carbs, or it might be 80 or 90% perhaps, depending on your sport. You find those carbs that are going to work, and it could be white rice, it could be, a, it could be a sweet potato, and a lot of people think that's popular. Sweet potatoes have a lot, a lot of oxalates, which can be a problem for some people. I mean, I, I generally say, you know, for me, I'd say start with something like this, get a dextrose, dextrose tablet or, or pure glucose or 
you know, maybe uh, honey or maple syrup. I mean, this is pure sugar, right? But that's yeah. really what we're wanting. That's the effect we're wanting as an athlete. We don't care about all the other stuff. And you take it like uh, before the workout or like during the yeah, workout? Yeah, I mean, or... this would be, would be either pre or intra workout. I mean, okay. I don't think there's any point in recovery. I mean, you know, the, 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 the date on that, and I've talked to some of the top protein researchers in the world. I mean, really to build muscle, you need uh, adequate amino acids. You need, you know, two and a half grams of leucine typically, two to three grams. You need uh, a calorie surplus typically. I know there's guys who are talking about putting on muscle in a deficit, and that's drugs and crazy, crazy stuff. That just most people can't do that. Hmm. And then, you know, you got to recover, you know, and you got to do the right training, right? So this is the ingredient. The carbohydrates don't really build muscle. Now you can have performance through glucose and glycogen, uh, you know, those would be the major advantages there. But then again, you might be able to get it from gluconeogenesis, depending on how many times a day you work out. If you're just working out once a day, you probably don't need the carbs for most workout. But if you're doing CrossFit and you're doing three workouts a day or you're doing prolonged, prolonged activity, you might need that little that little top off. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time, Sean. Uh, this was really fun. I'm sure we could keep it going for sure. another hour or two at least. Um, really great to meet you. I got just one last question before we get to that. How can listeners uh, find you on social media and, yeah. and, uh, and pick up your books? Yeah. So uh, social media, you know, Instagram, it's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Baker, B-A-K-E-R, 1967, Twitter, S-Baker-M-D. I've got a YouTube channel. I put up a video every day. Uh, we've got meetrx.com is a, is a company we started. So it's meat like meat and then rx like prescription.com. I'm on every single day. We do a live video session with all of our members. Thousands of members have you know started on this thing. And so we, we do that literally every day. There's success. There's hundreds and hundreds of success stories on the carnivore diet. There's resources, all the scientific research articles. There's all the environmental science research articles where people are wanting to defend animal agriculture, generative agriculture. It's all there. Recipes, you know, we've got, you know, we've got guests coming in all the time. So that's, that's a big thing I'm really excited about. And this is, this is, and we've got, and it's a, it's a, you know, support system and a coaching program. We've got, you know, we've got hundreds of coaches training people, uh, very inexpensive. It's like $18 a coaching session. So we're making it like just, you know, uh, accessible to as many people as possible because we really want to, you know, fix this sort of the healthcare system is kind of the disease management industry. It's, it's sick. And we're trying to kind of step out that and get into what's called, I'm, I'm calling health creation instead of disease management. Let's just stop making so many damn sick people. And, you know, we can really hopefully make a difference, but that, and then the book carnivore diet, uh, the carnivore diet by Dr. Sean Baker. It is, Amazon, a bunch of bookstores and all that stuff. Well, I think we're aligned in mission. And uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a friend of carnivores. You know, that's what I want you guys to, to know. Like, you know, I love Michaela and uh, Paul's a, a good friend of mine. I always learn something from him. He's a brilliant dude. And uh, I've learned from you. So um, we might not agree on everything, but, you know, I'm, uh, I think it's important to always be willing to challenge your, your own beliefs and assumptions. And um, clearly, you know, what I've learned from you over the past hour is that your heart's in the right place. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks for being here. The last question that I guess asked everybody on the genius life, what does it mean to you to live like a genius? <laughs> well, I think for me, uh, and I don't know if it's genius or not, but if I'm successful, I have, I will have helped, you know, hopefully millions of people. I mean, that's the, you know, that's at the end of the day. And, uh, that's what gets me up in the morning. You know, all the, you know, I, I get, I get a fair bit of negative commentary thrown my way quite a bit, but I mean, it's really, it's like 1% of what I get. And I get, I, I get so much positive feedback that that's, you know, and I, I, you know, I don't know how you want to define genius, but I think impacting people's lives to me is, is the most important thing. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Who are your biggest haters? I mean, I'm just going to like go out on a limb and say the vegans, <laughs> but 
Yeah, I think vegans are obviously not aligned. I mean, they, they think that I'm I'm trying to abuse animals, and I mean, I you know honestly, I, I'm I'm just trying to help help people get find what works for them, and so. You're I mean, not like pro-animal suffering. No, of course not. I mean, it's, you know, like I said, I, I you know, and it's kind of funny. I go, I go out and meet with ranchers and these people are the, probably the most caring people about their animals. Now, sure, at the end of the day, their animals all get slaughtered and we eat them. But right. I mean, you know, it's this belief that they're out there torturing animals is just, you know, beyond wrong, you know, and, 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 again, and again, it really depends on the type of animal too. And I certainly align more with the cattle ranchers. Um I mean, beyond that, I don't know. I mean, I've got people, obviously, that are, you know, they're, they they think that I'm saying this is some miracle and it's the only way that works, and I don't. I mean, you know, they're like, well, it's just because you're in a caloric deficit. I mean, that has a role, clearly, and a lot of people are. I think there's other advantages as well. I mean, protein makes an, makes an impact. Uh, you know, I think there's food addiction issues. I think there's a lot of, a lot of reasons why this diet works. Um, you know, if you want to try it, it's fine. I'm here for you guys. If you don't agree with it, don't do it. I'm not, you know, it's kind of simple as that. It's, you know, uh, but it's surprising. I, I'm surprised even even among vegans because I tell them warning following me and following my page is hazardous to your ideology because I get lots and lots of ex-vegans that come up and said, hey, I used to hate you. Now I love you, you know, because you've changed my life. So it's kind of a funny, you know, longer in this stuff. Yeah. I mean, you're bound to get hate at some point. You know, you yeah, grow I'm, big enough. And sure. I think that's, that's probably a sign that you're doing the right thing, you know, that you're like making an impact. So, yeah. um, thanks for being here to all you guys out there in podcast land. Thank you so much for tuning into the genius life. As always, I value your time and attention. I appreciate you take a moment to, uh, share this episode of the show, highlight your favorite quote from Dr. Baker or I tag us both and I will catch you on the next episode. Peace. Peace.